0: We know that many of our readers like to share their copy of the Church Times with others. That may not be possible at the moment. As an alternative, we're offering a short-term discounted subscription, just £1 a week for 10 weeks. That includes UK delivery and there's no obligation to renew. You can purchase the subscription for yourself or as a gift for someone else. You'd enjoy all of our usual subscriber benefits, the paper in the post each week, all the news at churchtimes.co.uk, access to the digital archive, the app for iPhone and iPad, and listening to this podcast. To purchase a subscription, go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash 10 weeks. I'm joined this week by Chinny MacDonald. She's a writer and broadcaster and is also the head of community fundraising and public engagement at Christian Aid. Chinny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've written the "Lift Up Your Hearts" article for this week's Church Times about some of the things that have sustained you during lockdown. You write for me, lockdown has involved almost an acceleration and an increased intensity to the rhythm of my usual life. I feel busier and less rested than I've ever been. Can you talk a bit a bit about why it's been so um, sort of intense for you this lockdown.
1: Well, I have a two-year-old boy, and during lockdown, I got a new job as well, and I've been doing various um, freelance jobs and also trying to write a book as well so as well as the world being on fire (laughs) and having to kind of cope with that mentally and the shock of everything it's just been quite intense at home trying to juggle everything but I recognize that I do have it pretty good pretty lucky have got a garden got a house have a child that i love <laughs> and it's important to remember those things when you're feeling really frustrated and stretched so yeah it it has felt like there hasn't been enough time in the day and there hasn't been much space in between kind of work and life the kind of the ritual of walking to the station getting on a train walking into the office i miss that kind of rhythm and the ritual of the working day. You, you write about
0: how praise and worship music has sustained you. Are there any particular songs or hymns that you've sort of found nourishing at this time?
1: So every day I go on a walk at five thirty a.m and I love it because it's quiet and I feel like I have got this place to myself. But every day as I walk out my door I put on a song called Imela which is Imela means thank you in my language of Igbo, which is a, a Nigerian language from the southeast of Nigeria, and it's the words are "imela," which is "thank you," and "okaka Rua, which is "great and mighty creator of the world." And I actually sang this song a cappella at St. Paul's Cathedral <laughs> a few months ago during remember, a talk yeah. on race. And in it, I was talking about how, when in white majority spaces, sometimes I feel it is important for me to hear. Um, songs in my ancestral tongue. Those make me feel connected to God in a way that I hadn't realised was possible, or that I cared about. So that's my daily song that I listen to um, while walking down <laughs> down my road and down the high street.
0: You also write in your piece about a particular painting you've been drawn to during this time.
1: Yeah, so it's a bit of an odd one. It's um, a painting of the Crucifixion by Matthias Grünewald, and. People might be very familiar with it, but it's a pretty gruesome depiction of Christ on the cross, and it's depicting Christ as suffering from this condition called ergotism, which was this kind of plague-like condition where he's covered in sores and, and pop marks and, and horrible things. And I've always, I remember at university, I studied theology. We did a piece where we compared that image to Dali's Christ of Saint John of the Cross, which is a beautiful, stunning painting the kind of painting that we're more familiar with when it comes to the crucifixion. But for me, the Grunewald gruesome image really resonates with what I think Christ is in suffering. And the past few weeks have been really horrible for lots of people around the world who have lost loved ones, who have gone through this horrible pandemic, who are worried about their jobs, their lives, their livelihoods. Who might be feeling far away from God. But that image is a reminder to me that Christ, the Christ that I believe in, is a Christ who isn't triumphant but who suffers with us. And part of the incarnation is the fact that God is right there with us in the horribleness, in the gruesomeness of life.
0: You also talk about books. I mean, have you found time for reading? And if so, sort of what, which books have you been drawn
1: to? So I'm a bit addicted to books but i never i've got lots of books on the go at the same time and i'm writing a book at the moment called god is not a white man and other revelations which is around race and faith i've been really drawn to lots of black writers from the us but also the uk uk who are writing about the black experience whether that is in church or out of church and one of those books uh, that i've been reading recently during lockdown is a book called between the world and me by Tanahisi Coates, which is an essay framed as a letter to Coates' son about what it means to be black and a black man in America. Obviously, we've seen in recent weeks with the killing of George Floyd, the fact that racial injustice and racial prejudice is still very much alive and well in the US, but also within the UK, and it's prevalent everywhere. So not just in police brutality, but discrimination at work disproportionate ways in which black minority ethnic people are affected by COVID-19 and this book is a beautifully written essay and almost a lament of the way things are but also looks to his son as a way to provide change for the future.
0: That brings us on to something I wanted to talk about which is the Radio 4 programme that you presented last week called No Justice, No Peace, Religion and Protest and it's reviewed by our radio critic, uh, very favourably in this week's Church Times. Uh, that's it, Edward Wickham writing on it. It is a transatlantic conversation about Christianity and racism. Um, Could you just say a bit about how the programme came about and why you felt it was important to have a transatlantic conversation about this?
1: I think when we look at the kind of thousands of people protesting in London or in towns and cities around the UK with posters that say Black Lives Matter. A lot of people can't really understand why it is that black British people and white British people would care that a man in America was killed through police brutality. So I've been thinking about why it is that I, as a black Briton, care about black America or African Americans. And I feel like a lot of it is because I grew up watching black Americans um, rather than black Britons. Obviously, we have this special relationship between the US and the UK, and we're really closely linked. Even though a lot of our experiences and our situations are different, there is a lot that is similar um, in the Black experience. So I wanted to have the conversation between Black Christians from the US and Black Christians from the UK, thinking not just about our individual experience, but about the, the history, the sociology, and the different forms of protest against racial injustice over the past few decades. So we look at the differences between Malcolm X's approach and Martin Luther King's. We look at the the way that at certain points the church was at the forefront of the civil rights movement but yet the church in America and the church in the UK has at times been at the forefront of the most racist groups such as the Ku Klux Klan and why is that? So we explore some of those issues in the programme. It was really amazing to be part of that conversation. Um, feedback has been really good and people have said that they learnt a lot about the church's role in racial justice and injustice that they hadn't learnt before.
0: That's great. I think you you say towards the start of the program that the, the Bible is on the one hand being used to justify slavery but elsewhere became the script of the civil rights movement. It depends in whose hands the Bible is held. So are you also exploring and ha- how the Bible is being used in, in all of this?
1: Yeah so we explore some of that and one of the questions that professor robert beckford asks in the program is whether there is enough in the bible to combat racism or to um, speak out against slavery there are bits in it but there aren't that many kind of verses that we can point to that show that god obviously hates um, slavery so we talk about some of the themes of the bible that come out about justice, about equality, about every tribe and tr- tongue and um, being made in the image of God. So some of that comes out in it, but we also talk about Donald Trump's photo opportunity and him posing in front of the Episcopal church with a Bible in the hand and how, what that image portrays and what that image tells us about America and Christianity.
0: Oh yeah, Robert Beckford speaks in the program about He says this could be a Kairos moment, a moment of judgment and transformation, which has the potential to transform race relations. Um, Do do you share that optimism?
1: I do, actually. The past few weeks have shown me something I've not seen before, which is lots of white people, lots of my white friends, but also uh, further, really being outraged by what they saw with George Floyd's death and we've seen see, uh church denominations and companies and football teams and politicians putting out statements saying that they believe that black lives matter which is great. I've, had, I've been inundated with requests um, from people who want to know how to find diverse books for their children or how to speak out against their racist family member and that is great and there seems to definitely be some momentum and change um, is happening but there's also an overwhelming burden for people like me who for whom we're often the only black friend that people have so we're being kind of asked to solve a problem that is not one that we created obviously we can be part of the solution but i one of my friends i think selena stone um wrote somewhere on social media that when thinking about racial justice You should never leave the black person with the most work to do, basically. And that now this is it's over to white people, basically, to fix this.
0: And thinking about that, I mean the Church of England, it's it's been commented and that, you know, particularly since Dr. John Sentamu retired as Archbishop of York, I think there are no black or minority ethnic diocesan bishops in the Church of England. There's a real lot of people talking about this lack of that the leadership doesn't represent adequately at all the the country I mean do you have thoughts about what could be done to address that because there's a lot of strong words about at the moment what sort of action do you think is needed
1: yeah so it with the church of England I think there has been so much talk over the past you know 20 30 years the church of England has more kind of commissions on race or bodies that, that speak about race than any other organization that I know but yeah it feels like change hasn't happened or that progress is really really slow so I think what it'll take is structural change so thinking about the processes in which people arrive to leadership positions within the church how do those happen who are the decision makers who has the power to make change who's ready to give up power so that other people can can come through and I think all of this takes there is a lot of goodwill but all of this actually takes money and it takes effort and it takes wholesale change rather than just words.
0: And Lindsay in your programme, um, who's a, a British pastor, he he talks about having integration fatigue. He talk, describes it as when you're one of the few voices in a predominantly white environment and you keep banging the drum of justice and that voice is not heard. And I was, I was wondering if the, if you relate to that experience.
1: I do hugely relate to that experience. I, I have grown up in majority white spaces in kind of home counties, went to Cambridge University, there weren't many people who looked like me. So I'm kind of used to it. But I think one thing I've realized about this moment that we're in is it feels like the stuff that I've been talking about for years, my white friends or white colleagues have suddenly believed me (laughs) or they've suddenly seen something where they think, oh, actually, this is a real problem that we've got to do something about. and. And having you know having having gone on about it, you do start to feel a bit self-conscious when people don't don't believe you, and a bit tired of having to say the same things. Um, and you don't want to be accused of playing the race card or following identity politics or anything like that. So it is really tiring being the only one. But I'm really glad that I'm definitely not the only one anymore.
0: You're talking very about terms like white supremacy and structural racism and unpack what what they mean. I mean, do you sense there's a growing understanding of what's meant by that and also have you detected any backlash against the use of those terms and i read i think the cover story in the spectator this week by douglas murray really um criticized that sort of
1: discourse i really understand why terms like that get people's backs up and it almost ends the conversation at that point but i think A lot of it is about a misunderstanding of what we're talking about. White supremacy seems to be synonymous with people who are from the Ku Klux Klan or um, skinheads or Nazi far-right people who obviously are racist and don't like people who are not white. But what we're talking about with white supremacy is this pervasive idea that whiteness is best or better. And that can be in subtle things when we talk about, when we look at the way that the Church of England is structured or the faces that occupy the leadership positions, or when we are very kind of Western and white in the worship music or the hymns that we sing, or in the depictions that we have of Jesus. All of those things point to this underlying belief that whiteness is next to godliness and that anything else is kind of other and lesser. And wants to be apologised for or tolerated or whatever it is. And so I understand why people feel people feel ashamed of that word and they feel defensive about it because they don't believe that they're racists. But I think we have to keep using the word so that people think about their actions and the way that they see the world. Maybe just finally, Chris, talk about your work at Christian
0: Aid at this time and what some of the challenges have been with COVID nineteen
1: well we're seeing um in the countries that we work in around the world you know we we see the impact that it has on poorer communities in the uk so we think about how communities in bangladesh or nigeria who were already facing impacts from lack of health care or extreme poverty um, or climate change and then you add into the mix the global pandemic which rest- restricts their movement or in you know humanitarian camps where there are hundreds of thousands of people all in close confinement. And you think how ridiculous it is to talk about social distancing in those places. Our actual work is being impacted on the ground. Also, the way in which we are able to fundraise for our work has also been impacted. So we had Christian Aid Week in the middle of May, which is our biggest fundraising moment. And you might be familiar with the red envelopes that are posted through people's doors and the church collections and the house-to-house collections and big breakfasts. None of those things could happen this year. But we were really amazed, actually, with how our supporters took up the challenge um, digitally and still raised lots of money for Christian Aid. But we definitely have got some longer term impacts that we are going to have to deal with this year. I just finally I mean, just always as we've been speaking, we've
0: received news about the Department for International Development <laughs> merging with the Foreign Office. I remember Rory Stewart, when he spoke at a Christian Aid event earlier this year at St James's Piccadilly, this came up and he He was very much against it. I mean, what's Christian Aid's stance on this news? Well,
1: we're not happy. (laughs) Um, It's something that has been um, floated for months. So we had an idea it was coming. But I think what's particularly inappropriate is the timing in which it's happening. It's happening during a global pandemic where the world's poorest people need our help the most. It doesn't feel like the right time to be doing this while also talking about a global Britain. So it makes us look more parochial. It makes our place in the world smaller rather than greater. And regardless of how it makes us look, I think that we, as a nation, have a moral responsibility to help people that need us. Obviously, DFID will still exist in some form, but its power or its wings have been clipped. And that's what we're disappointed with.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. Thank <music> you.